Welcome to All Ears at Child's Voice, a podcast discussing all things hearing loss. We aim to connect parents of children with hearing loss with the professionals who serve them. We're your hosts. I'm Tatum Fritz. And I'm Jessica Brock. Last week, we talked with Michael Douglas about dual languages with children with hearing loss. And today, we're going to talk with Elsa Auerbach about the changes that deaf education has experienced over time. We're so excited to have today's guests on the show with us. Welcome, Elsa. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) Well, we're excited to have you. Elsa Auerbach is a teacher of the deaf at Child's Voice. She began as a teacher at Child's Voice one month before the school opened in 1996. She has been teaching since August 1963 and has taught adult lip reading at the Chicago Hearing Society. She was the head teacher at Northwest Suburban Special Education Organization, also known as NSSEO, and she had a private tutoring practice for 35 years. Elsa, can you share a little about what you do at Child's Voice? Well, over the 23 years I've done it all, I've done early intervention, I've done the preschool, I've done the grade level kids. I've done it all, whatever they needed, I've done, but I prefer being with those little three-year-olds. They sure are cute. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They get me. (laughs) We like asking our guests every week for a story from the past week. It can be something cute or heartwarming or touching. Does anything come to mind? Well, actually, yes. I was doing lunch duty with the older kids, most of which had been in my class at one time or another. And when I walked in, there was screaming and yelling, Elsa, Elsa, come here. I want to hold you. I want to hug you. Remember when I was in your room? Oh, would you sit over here with me? I love you and I miss you. And I thought, aha, that's why I'm here. Oh, that's got to feel good. Yeah. And then shortly after that, one of my students from eight years ago walked in the school to say hello. All grown up. and hmm. That's amazing. It was an exciting day. That's so cool. We see kids when they're like two, so they often don't remember us even when they're three. Well, sometimes. Well, I have one in my room that remembers you very well. That is true. Every once in a while, there's one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Sometimes I get like a faint look of recognition, but... I've seen you somewhere. Yeah. Like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> we only spent like three years together. But <laughs> yeah. And I was at your house. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why don't we start on our main discussion? Can we first start by talking about how you got into the field of deaf education? Well, I got into the field. I was born right into it. My grandmother was born with no hearing at all. And in those days, they couldn't do a thing about it. My mother then, a generation later also lost her hearing, but by then they were more advanced. And both of those women had otosclerosis. And by the time my mother was diagnosed, they had two different kinds of surgeries to correct that. She had both of them. She could hear fine. It was very exciting. And I just knew that's what I was going to do. I was going to work with the deaf. I saw how my grandmother struggled not being able to hear. I mean, she had language because she was an adult, but I thought, I think we can do better. Did you think that you would work with children or adults? Well, I've done both, and I like both, but I adore the children. I just adore the children. They're just something that just gets to your heart. You know. So we talked a little bit about how you got into the field. Mm -hmm. How did you view deafness when you first entered the field? You know, it never was odd to me, so I never viewed it in an odd way what was Odd was when I'd see hearing children talking and singing and laughing, and that was odd (laughs) because I was used to the children not talking. So, 
you know, I just viewed it as I'm going to get these kids talking. I'm going to get them laughing. I'm going to get them learning. Yeah. I didn't view them as anything unusual. Yeah. They were kids. Yeah. So you knew that you wanted to work with people who were deaf. Mm -hmm. You'd seen your mom and your grandma. And so you decided to start studying it, which your path brought you to CID, which it is sure did. Central Institute for the Deaf in St. Louis. Do you Amazing. want to talk a little bit about that? Love it, love it. It was the hardest thing I ever did. <laughs> it was a, an intense two-year program. And every week I'd call my mother and say, I'm coming home. I can't do this. It was going to classes. It was teaching in the classrooms when the teacher was absent. It was working with the residential children after school, before school, on the weekend. You were so immersed in it, and you were working in the clinics for speech. You were in the hospitals for stroke patients. You were everywhere. And you would get one weekend a month off to yourself. It was horribly hard, but it was wonderful. I came out of there feeling very confident. Yeah. What was the education like? So you were learning oh, how amazing. to yeah, to teach kids yeah. to talk. Well, the professors which was pretty new at, the, at the time. At the time I was there, the professors that were teaching the class were all of the professors that wrote the texts that all the universities studied from. And they were our teachers. And that alone blows your mind. And what an education that was. And our classes were small at CID. Mm -hmm. We started with 16 students from all over the United States and out of the United States. The second year, only eight were asked to come back. Wow. And it wasn't because of academics. It was because they felt maybe you didn't work well with children. It wasn't what they wanted to put a recommendation on. Mm -hmm. So I felt the education, and I didn't realize it as much then as I do now that I learned from like the gods of deaf education, mm -hmm. truly, and of research. We had them, this wonderful research facility. It was just unbelievable. What kinds of things are you learning then? So the field has changed oh, yeah. so much. <laughs> was lip reading taught? What practices were you learning? Well, at CID, it was very broad, not like now where you go to school and you're just going to study speech path or you're just going to study early intervention. We had it all. Mm -hmm. We had the speech clinic. We had the audiology department, and we had the hospitals, and we had our professors. And coming out of there, you had the option of being any of those things, which today would be a killer. And it was a killer then <laughs> because... You know, you think, oh, boy, I know all of these things. And when I went looking for a job, one of the places I looked at was an audiology clinic. And I thought, oh, well, I, I took this. I know. I used to do the testing for all the public schools in St. Louis. Wow. Then I saw the equipment. I thought, this is, no, I'm not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and mind you, at that time, the equipment was basic. The audiometer was a pure tone audiometer. Bing, do you hear this? No. Okay, you hear this one? was so basic. But I kind of knew after being there and seeing that the children at that time, you know, they didn't have implants. And so their access to sound was limited. Mm -hmm. And lip reading was so important because they couldn't hear anything. So doing auditory training was tough. Mm -hmm. They wore hearing aids that, you know, they turned on and they turned off. That's it. You didn't fix this one for you and that one for you. You turn it on, you turn it off. Mm -hmm. 
teaching auditory training was tough, and getting lovely speech out of these kids was tough. It was very typical deaf speech, monotonous. It was just slow. It was a whole different thing. Um, it was hard, but yeah. those kids still learned. Go yeah. figure. <laughs> <laughs> not they like had, they not like they learned today, though. Mm, yeah. Not well, they bit. had you as a teacher, so no, they were bound no, to learn. No, but I mean, <laughs> you know, seeing what we had to work with then and what I have to work with now, this is a dance in the park. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. really yeah. is. So we'll get to that. <laughs> I mean, working with you guys, yes. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you make my job easy. Oh, thank oh. you. Talk to us a little about when kids were being identified with hearing loss in the 60s. Uh, my first class was in 1963, and it was in a public school, one special ed class in a school. And I had seven or eight kids in that class, and they were all newly identified age five. Wow. So look at all the years they lost. Yeah. And even at that, at age five, they're wearing inferior hearing aids. Mm-hmm. Their speech was nothing, and their language was nothing, and I'm in there having to teach reading and writing and math. and You know, it was a good thing I was young, because I don't know that I could do that now. <laughs> it was hard, but these were amazing children of whom I still correspond with today. Really? Yes. How are they doing? It, well, it's interesting. One young man I correspond with was a skater in the Olympics, Wow. And I had him in my class along with his sister, and he kept in contact with me. And one other little girl did too. But recently he wrote to me and he said, you know, I'm going to let all the other students that were in our class know your email. I said, great. Well, then I got the response. One of the women, girls, now a woman, said, Elsa, you mean she's still alive? (laughs) And that was, all I did was laugh for about 20 minutes. I had to send that to everybody. It was hilarious. But, you know, they're old now. (laughs) They're old. Mm -hmm. They were five when I had them. Mm -hmm. And that was the 50-something years later. They're old. Wow. So... (laughs) You said the average age is age five. Five. So how did they get identified? Was it like um, a screening at school? Did it vary? Probably screening because I used to do screenings in the public school, but it was such a a flimsy way to screen. You know, you'd give them two frequencies on the audit. Okay, you're deaf. And so when they came to me, they hadn't been anywhere else. So Mm -hmm. I had these seven, eight kids in my room, hadn't been anywhere else. They never heard anything. They can't communicate, really, and they didn't even learn any sign language, which I thought maybe they would have somehow, but that's what we got, and they were age five, five and six, those kids, and I had them for three years because it wasn't like a school like this where, you know, they can move to another class and another class. It was one class in this school, and in another suburb there was another class, and in another suburb there was another class, and no two teachers did the same things. Really? No. They all came from different universities. They had different uh, techniques of teaching, different curriculum, and it was terrible. Was listening and spoken language even really an option back then, or what did that look like? It, It was. We didn't see any sign language classes at that time. They didn't call it that. At CAD, they called it auditory oral. Yeah. Sometimes it was called oral oral. But it was the same thing, speech, listening. And so in this co-op where I worked, they were all spoken English. Yeah. Nobody spoke, but 
You know, it was basic. So I'm assuming that in their public schools or perhaps a doctor's office, they were tested. And, you know, in those times they used the, what, what is that? Tuning fork. fork. Yes. There you yeah. go. That's how they did it in the doctor's office. They go like this and put it on the kid's forehead. Oh, yes, I have seen. Yeah. I've heard yeah. of that before. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I've seen some changes. Yes, which is why we're having you on. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah, it is. So you mentioned kids are diagnosed late, much later than today. Poor equipment. Poor equipment, the technology. Even in poor. the classroom, you know, what we had in the classroom was a loop that went around a certain area of the classroom, and the kids wore these big, heavy earphones that would hard rubber, and their ears would be beat red in an hour. And those earphones plugged into this thing on the table, and then it all went into this microphone that I wore, and that was an FM system then. That was it. That was it. Belltone made that. It was the only one around. And when I went into my first classroom, there was a box with all that equipment thrown in the box. And it was like, here, Elsa, put it together. It's like, what? <laughs> I'm going to do what? <laughs> like I say, I was glad I was young then. I, I didn't know to be angry about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a challenge. And the good part was parents were eager to help. They would come in and help me in my classroom. They would bring materials. I mean, I didn't have any materials. I just came out of school. What did I have, you know? So it was a challenge. My mother used to come on the train and come and teach Aww. them art activities. <laughs> it was cute. So she liked it. So given all the challenges, what were outcomes like? Outcomes were minimal. The boy that I still talk to, he's very successful. He was very artistic as a child when I would be making a picture to teach them something, and I'd make like a, a dog or something on a paper. And he'd just take the paper out of my hands. He says, no dog. <laughs> and he'd make a dog. He was very artistic, and he now has a graphic art business. Mm -hmm. He's married, children. His wife is also deaf, and she was oral and signing, and I think because his voice quality was very poor, I think he eventually stopped the talking and went to the signing, but he's successful. The other girl that I still communicated with, she's also married with children, and she had a job at a library, and she too didn't talk much. So most of those kids did not end up being quite chatty. Yeah. I understand why. It was even hard for me being with these kids for three years to understand what they're saying. It was difficult. Yeah. And you didn't want to keep saying what? You didn't want them to feel unsuccessful. But the outcomes were fair. The advances in technology have made such a difference, I think, for a lot of these kids. But we'll get to that. So you're in the 60s. You're a new teacher. You're working with these kids. And then in the 70s, you moved into private practice. Is that correct? I was around moved then? into it by the school districts. Oh. Because around that time in Illinois, you could not enroll your child in an oral classroom for the deaf. They all of a sudden just disappeared from the face of the earth. Wow. And every special ed classroom for deaf children was a TC program with mostly signing and very little voice. So TC is in total communication. Yes, but I really wasn't fond of that for me. And so parents were 
going to the school district say, hey, I want my child to talk. I want them to hear. What can you do? So the school districts where I lived contracted me to come into their different buildings and pull kids and also to work with kids that were homebound. I would take my own little baby children over to the homebound place, and that mom would watch my kid, and I would work with their kid. (laughs) They started me on that, and more and more families would contact me, and pretty soon my husband said, I think you need an office. So he built an office for me in our basement, and it was very nice, and I did that for 20-some years, even after I was here. And so I'd be here five days a week, and then I'd go home, and on the weekends I had Saturdays and Sundays filled. Wow. You were busy. You were in high demand. So in Illinois, it sounds like it was mostly total communication in yes. the 70s. There were no programs for oral um, they had a They had kind of a program in Jacksonville, kind yeah. of. It was a split building. I think it still okay. is. One side yeah. was uh, ASL, and one side was... TC. Oh, okay. So if parents wanted their kids to be educated in an oral mode, where would they go? They'd go out of state. Mm-hmm. And most of them went to St. Louis, but that was the closest state. And St. Louis at that time, and still today, they have three or four excellent, excellent schools. And so the moms would go to St. Louis, they would rent an apartment near whichever school they chose. And they would live there five days a week with their child because they didn't want their child to live in the school, even though there were residential schools there. And then on the weekend, they come home to see dad and the rest of the kids. And this went on until all of those moms and dads contacted Jean Moog, who was at that time was at CID, and begged her, please, please, would you open up a school in the Chicagoland area? And she did. And I knew Jean from when I was at CID, and so I called her. I said, you know, count me in. She said, well, don't you want to know how much you're going to get paid or what? I said, no, count me in. (laughs) And I already had a full-time job, but I gave notice. And so six children, their parents were brave enough to enroll their children in a brand-new school. They didn't know how it was going to be. And I was the one teacher, and there was another teacher that worked there about three months before she went back to St. Louis. So it was me and the other teacher, and we had an early childhood teacher in a church school building. So this is the beginning of Child's Voice? That was day one. (laughs) Child's Voice started day one when when Jean said, okay, and they went and rented this place. Mm -hmm. And we went there and cleaned up the three rooms and... And this was in a church building? It was. And then this was in 1996. Yes. So you mentioned that the oral programs disappeared in the 70s. So it was that big of a gap before there There were services here. Yes, yes, a huge gap, which led me to a different direction also, because I did have the private practice, but that doesn't fill a full-time schedule. And so I worked at different places for schools that had a sabbatical, and they needed a itinerant teacher or whatever they needed at the time. And I would do that, and then I got a full-time job as uh, English as a second language in a university, oh, wow. which was really awesome because the techniques were so much the same. Yeah, they are. <laughs> yeah. And at that time, working with adults, I didn't need different certification. 
Oh, wow. So I had that full-time job for quite a few years. was amazing. Wow. That's so interesting. That's the one I said, bye-bye. They're opening up Child's Voice. Goodbye. <laughs> In another episode this season, we interviewed Uma Soman. She's at the Carl Auditory School. Oh. In her article, she talked about how English as a second language, like ELL techniques are so similar for what you should continue to do with kids who are in the mainstream with hearing loss. Okay, let's go back to the start of Child's Voice. Yes. So Child's Voice opens in 1996. You're the teacher there. When did you first start seeing children with cochlear implants? Right away. We had one student that was one of our first six students that came in with an implant. And I go, wow, hmm. What is this? <laughs> I better. So I had to go to a whole bunch of you know conferences and uh, workshops, and I thought I I don't know about this. I was very skeptical. And this child, it was necessary for her to have an implant because she had Usher's syndrome and she had to learn spoken language without lip reading. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for our listeners, Usher's syndrome causes varying degrees of deafness and blindness. Um, So this kiddo was probably unlikely to be able to see the signs in an American Sign Language program. She wouldn't be able to rely on lip reading either. No. So that's when you need really good auditory access. Yes. And so she was the one we all learned on, and she did very well. And I was really shocked because you couldn't you couldn't even whisper around her because she knew what you said. I mean, you know, you had to really watch it with my kiddos now. If I'm whispering something under my breath, like, oh, boy, I'm tired. Oh, you tired? <laughs> uh, yeah, I am. Uh-huh, you hear better than I do. Yeah, I guess, yeah, you didn't have to worry about no, that back in the day. No, you could <laughs> scream it out. I know. How, in your view, did cochlear implants change the field of deaf education? Oh, a gazillion percent. Mm-hmm. These children got access to sound. Yes, we had to help them learn how to use that sound. It wasn't the same as putting a hearing aid on if you blast it full and you weren't severely deaf. You mm-hmm. just got louder stuff. But this was different. This was more like a computer-generated sound. But it didn't take that long for the kids to really catch on to that. And once they did, what I noticed was the melody of their language. Mm-hmm. No longer flat liners. The melody, and they're singing, and they're laughing. And not too long ago, we had a wonderful musical program here, of which I ended up leaving in tears, because... The guys were playing the music, and here is like 40 of our kids sitting there on the floor, most of them with implants, and the music is playing, and they're all swaying to the music, and they're clapping, and they're singing, and I started to cry. I thought, oh, my God, look at this. They're listening to music. They're dancing. They're singing. Wouldn't have had that in the 60s. They wouldn't have heard that. I mean, I even had my first class, I even had the principal get me an electronic piano brought into my classroom. I think if I play it hard enough and loud enough, and the best I got out of that was for them to feel the tactile of the the piano. A lot of tactile was taught then. A lot on the face, a lot on the neck. So how does it impact them in a great deal in every Mm -hmm. way? In the beginning, it was just you could hear with it. But now, you, you know, you can get on the phone with it, you can... Put it in a TV. You can put it in your <laughs> boombox. I mean, there's so much they can yeah, do with it. Oh, boy, you put it on, you can hear. That was wonderful. Now they're so intricate, and they can be adjusted 
in such minute little ways to just exactly fit. I don't know that they were able to do that then. When I watch how they do it here with adjusting, you know, the mapping and things, it's wonderful. And they're amazing. And I can't even guess what they're going to be like in another 20 years. I can't even guess. Smaller. Mm -hmm. And back in the 90s, I would imagine they were usually just putting one cochlear implant. One, yes, because they weren't able to get permission by the doctor or by insurance. Most insurance wouldn't even cover it then. Mm -hmm. But they didn't get permission to do two. So if you got one, you're lucky. So I've heard from other people who have been in the field longer than me that at the time when when the idea came about that you should do it bilaterally, that people who had been around for a while were a little hesitant. How was your experience? Well, the experience is you're only getting, you know, sound on one side. And so if someone's on your other side, you're not going to get the same access to sound. And even if As some kids did, they kept their hearing aid in one ear and had the implant in the other. That still was an uneven balance of where sound is coming from. And in the beginning, I thought, well, one's enough. Look how good they're hearing. But one isn't enough. If possible, two is great because you really need access on both sides. Yeah, the improvements in technology is really incredible. They're even like waterproof now. Mm -hmm. They're getting smaller. There are different, there's the behind the ear, there's a single unit. I mean, so many different options, which we've talked about as being a challenge for some families, like choosing between all those different options. But to think about a time when there really weren't any options and you were just really, really crossing your fingers that insurance would let you even Mm -hmm. implant one. I mean, Mm -hmm. I can't imagine the hurdles. Mm -hmm. And now the kids can even have Superman on there. (laughs) And they're magnets. (laughs) Very important. You get all these different color ear molds and I mean, very stylish now. So I'm just thinking like today when we work with families, I don't know how well this will translate because like our kids get diagnosed really young. We know from when they're babies if they've been diagnosed with profound hearing loss and whether or not they're likely a cochlear implant candidate. But sometimes it takes us a while to counsel a family for them to want to go ahead with a cochlear implant. Sometimes they're hesitant. Was that something that you saw back then? Were families just very excited about the cochlear implant? Were um, they worried about it? Most of them were worried about it because what they felt was, oh, you're going to drill into their brain. They didn't have enough information that, no, we're not doing that. And this is where it goes. And this is what it does. And I think most parents were afraid of it until they started seeing other children progress like they did. And we counseled a lot, especially our audiology department did a lot of counseling. Most of them did it. But even yet today, we have several parents whose children really need a better access to sound. And the parents are just kind of, well, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And their children are getting older, and I don't knows aren't good. Those early years, boy, the importance of receptive language from birth. And, and we have parents that are, you know, well, I don't know, and they need it. Or you have on, on an extreme case... Well, I don't know. I'm going to let my child get older and decide. You know, everybody, it's their choice. It's the parent's choice how they want it to be. Just like, do you want the oral option? Do you want signing? It's it's their choice for their lifestyle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, but as an educator, when we get the kids up from EI who have been there and have gotten the initial work along with the parents getting all the help, now when I get them at three, 
Well, it's a dance in the park for me because I'm not starting from zero now. You were yeah. in 1965. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, even later than that. Yeah. yeah. I know today the kids are implanted a lot earlier. So the kids that you were working with when you first started at Child's Voice, when were they receiving their implants? The one that was our first one in Child's Voice, she was implanted at five. But that was because of her syndrome. The other ones it took, you know, maybe at age six, they weren't doing it earlier then unless there was some really awesome reason. Now it's a whole different story because now I think they understand that that access to sound immediately is what's going to help that child. What were outcomes like for kids who were getting implanted at age six? Like they had no access to sound really until then. I imagine that being just as difficult as not. (laughs) Yeah, because now they can hear, but for five years have not learned any speech or words or so now they can hear, but it's like you're now working with a uh, six-month-old yeah. that can hear and hasn't language yet. But now here's a six, seven-year-old. He can hear. We're starting from the very beginning. Yeah. And, you know, the outcome, chances of those children mainstreaming completely, not good. Most of them had to go into, you know, special ed programs after they left our school. We used to keep them longer in the beginning. Mm-hmm. How long would you keep them? Well, we originally our bylaws said we could have children up from 3 until 11. I don't think we ever had one that was older than 11. And now, as soon as they're ready, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out. You need to go. <laughs> we know yeah. when they're ready, and we don't keep them longer than they need to be here. But when they leave here and they go into mainstream... They're academically above whoever else is in that classroom they go to, and it becomes just a social adjustment into a public school. Yeah, I was talking with one of my families recently about if a kiddo's language is really high, what's the benefit of continuing to do therapy? This is a child that isn't in the school. He's not school age yet. And I was saying, well, when they go to school, there is this big social adjustment, especially for being a child with a disability, hearing loss is a disability, there's this big social adjustment. And if we can get their language skills and their speech skills and their academic skills higher than grade level, then they can go into that mainstream classroom or whatever classroom they're going into and navigate the adjustments of being in a setting where there aren't other kids like them and have a little bit of a cushion, which is something that I think... That is exactly what we hope for, that they have a plenty good cushion, that academically they're ahead. If they go from here to kindergarten, they have all that information. If they go from here to first grade, they have all that, you know, reading, all that stuff. And they have wonderful language and capable of understanding the kind of directions that are given in those classrooms. Mm -hmm. But they have to also adjust to a class of 25, 30 kids, none of them wearing an implant or a hearing aid, and that is a tough adjustment. Yeah, the advocacy. Well, and if they leave too soon, they don't have the advocacy skills. Mm -hmm. They really don't have them yet. We'd like them to stay here to go into what we call our P2 area, which teaches them how to maneuver in the mainstream, how to care for yourself, how to advocate for yourself, Mm -hmm. along with, you know, all the academics. Which is really pretty remarkable if you think about that being our goal now, whereas your goal back then was probably, can they turn to their name? Can they say a few words? 
the goals are a lot different than yes they are yeah. you know and the advantage of a school like this is that a child can go from one teacher to the next teacher and the curriculum is the same any teacher could walk into any classroom and teach that class because we are all on the same page was it not like that it in was your not other like schools? no when i was at uh, Northwest Suburban, it was not like that. Nothing was the same. Mm -hmm. The way I taught phonetics was obviously the way I learned it at CID, but the other teachers went to different universities and they either did Thorndike symbols, they, they did this silly thing called Elkhorn symbols, which instead of a letter, it was a mouth shape. Mm -hmm. Now, what if that child goes from there to the next class, which does Thorndike symbols, and then goes to the next class, which does the international phonetic symbols? You're reteaching that child three times for one area. Yeah. And here, we just build on what was already there. Now we keep going. Mm -hmm. So that's an amazing advantage. That's what I saw when I was at CID. So you're making me think of the listening and spoken language field as a whole, which is governed by an organization called A.G. Bell. How has that changed over time since you have entered the field? Well, I think we've gotten more sophisticated. We've learned how to work with each other at other schools, other states, mm -hmm. and you, you get together with other facilities and you teach and learn with them. We didn't have that. I mean, I couldn't even talk to another teacher in NSSEO because I didn't know what they learned, and she didn't know what I learned. And when I became the lead head teacher there, and I had to go from suburb to suburb to look in their classrooms, it was like I didn't even know what to say <laughs> because I don't know what you're doing, and I can't criticize you. I mean, I was young. I couldn't criticize them, but there was no continuity. There was... It was just, you do your thing, and you do your thing. I'll do my thing, and however it works out. But in those days, those kids didn't mainstream. Yeah. I tried mainstreaming some of my children in that public school I was in. This one little boy that I still talk to. <laughs> little boy is an old man. Um, <laughs> but he was a math whiz. Mm -hmm. And so I made arrangements that he would go into a math class with a teacher that I thought would be accommodating. So, and maybe I'd put them in for PE, but there wasn't much else you could do. The other teachers were scared to even work with my kids. It wasn't like now. Yeah. yeah. Just thinking of now, I work a child's voice. I've done practicums elsewhere. Jessica and I both worked at the Mama Lear Hearing School at Vanderbilt. She's done practicums at the Moog Center, and I've done some at Sunshine Cottage. And to me, everything has always looked the same. We're all on the same page. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't like that then. And I think that's really like the benefit of having like mm -hmm. the overall listening spoken language certification yes. that we have now, yes. that network between schools that we have now. I think that's amazing when we would all get together all the different schools and present different things to each other. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or even when we would just present a class that we liked and we would show them how we taught a particular thing and we'd bring the materials. I mean, those little things are really helpful. It's pretty amazing to think that now we have a school full of 15, 20, how many professionals who know how to teach listening oh, and spoken language. I can't even language. tell you when we have our meetings all together. I know. It's like, wow. I look at Michelle. I said, where are all these people come from? There was only three of us here. <laughs> but it is. It is amazing how many professionals we have here and how 
wonderful every one of them are. I'm just amazed when we get brand new teachers coming in. I'm so proud of how they come in and, and they're so good. I see new teachers coming in all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm just really proud of them, really. <laughs> I used to do a lot of practicum students in my classroom. I, I stopped doing that a few years ago because I think the younger girls really would prefer to do that. It is a lot of work to have a practicum student. Too. Yeah, but I used to have like two or three a year, wow. and, I, and I loved it. And two of my practicum students are full-time teachers here, so I hold it over their head a lot. <laughs> uh, but they came in as a practicum student mm-hmm. with amazing skills. It was like, whoa. I didn't see that when I got out of school and I saw the other teachers in that co-op. I didn't see that. They were floundering. They didn't know what to do. Coming from CID, they just bang it into your head that you know what to do because they make you do it. So you're not afraid of having a classroom where people come in to observe you. You don't care, Yeah, you know, because you're used to that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't fluster you. What's your advice to new teachers or therapists entering the field of deaf education? I don't know what to say about that. Find a job at a place you are going to be comfortable in, at a place you feel you can do something good, and you're going to come away saying, wow, look what I did. And I get that here. I mean, I know because of my age, I'm sure a lot of teachers wonder, why are you still here? I can't imagine my life without coming here and working with these kids and these teachers. I really love it here. And those kids bring you life. They do. So if you're looking for a job, you look at a place that you respect and you can see you're a fit in there and you can do something. You don't ever want to be at a place where they think, well, you're a new teacher. What do you know? That's a terrible way to hire somebody. That's good advice. It's a good yeah. thing you guys are so amazing. Yeah. Do you have any advice to parents of children with hearing loss? Yeah, it's hard for the parents, especially the little ones you guys see, because they're still grieving and they're still hurting and they're scared. It's important that the parents feel really, really comfortable with the teacher and work together with the teacher. And it's important for the teacher to understand the emotional needs of the parent and give the parent things they can do at home that are simple. Give them tasks to do that they wouldn't think about, like, oh, when you're giving them a bath, why don't you do this and this? Why don't you sing this song? And why don't you use a little ducky? Those kind of things a parent thinks, well, they're deaf. What's the point? I don't read to my child because they're deaf. Well, yes, you better read to your child. (laughs) You want the parent to know there's things they can do and that you're there to work with them because both of you love this child. And it helps to bring those parents in to see some of our older kids that used to be there, and now they're over here. And look, this is the path we're going to go on. Mm-hmm. And that's why when we have our like graduation and parents of newbies come to the graduation, they're like in tears because they think, wow, my child can do this. They can get up and give a speech and sing a song. You know, on a graduation, I'm like the biggest crybaby because <laughs> I hear the music of pomp and circumstance and I'm already bawling because those babies were in my room when they were three. And now here they are walking down with the blue gowns and I'm dying. You know, I'm so proud. I'm so happy. Almost every guest in our podcast has mentioned the graduation. It's wonderful. If they're connected to Child's Voice in any way. <laughs> it is. It's, it's amazing. 
So our listeners should know what it is. (laughs) Yes, it's our graduation of the kids that have reached what we think is the time to mainstream. Yeah. Where they will be successful. And it is amazing. I know we're probably going to wrap up soon, but you made me think of one more question. I know you talked a little bit about parents grieving now and how to deal with it. I'm just wondering, I'm interested in, have you noticed a difference in the grieving process between now and back in the 60s, now that there is more hope, or do you feel like it's still the same? Well, in the 60s, by the time I saw the parents, the kids were five. Mm -hmm. Now, by the time a child is three and I get them, you guys in EI have started addressing all the issues. Mm -hmm. And so it is easier. And the parents are very willing now to help with the teacher, help with the child. How can I come in? Can I come in and volunteer? It's different because all these services are immediate when your child is diagnosed at birth and they come in with a little baby. And you guys start dealing with, this is what you can do as a parent. This is how you can do this and that. That's the difference. You start early, and you're starting with professionals. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine, too, with late diagnosis, we've already gone through this whole period of time maybe wondering what's wrong, what's going on. Why isn't my kid talking? Why isn't will my kid they ever? turning to their name? That kind of stuff, yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas with newborn hearing screenings, they're sort of being hit with this information right before they've even really gotten to know their kid at all. Mm-hmm. Which the advantage of that is that we're in there early, the outcomes will be better, but the emotional toll that that Uh, takes Mm -hmm. is... It can take away from that first attachment, which would be a really good topic for future seasons. But it's way different now for the parent. It's so much better for the parent now. They're not alone. They have a whole school full of people waiting to help you and programs for parents to meet other parents and talk to them about their same needs that we as teachers really can't address all those same things because we don't have a hearing impaired child. And so we've worked hard over the years to put parent with another parent. Why don't you call this one? Maybe you'd like to get together, have the kids play together, and they can talk about what really is getting them. I love watching the parents when they're coming to pick up kiddos from the school, stand in the lobby talking to each other. Mm -hmm. It makes me feel really happy that they have that community. So important. Last question. Uh Uh-oh. And this is not on the list of questions. Oh, my (laughs) God. What are you most proud of at Child's Voice? Oh, my gosh, everything about it. I am proud to see how it's evolved from six little kids and two teachers and now our own building and filled with all these kids. I spent a lot of time just looking around saying, well, look what we did. I think I care about this school way more than I should (laughs) because I've been here from the beginning, but I care about it like it's my own, and maybe that's why I don't want to retire because it's mine. And I'm proud of all these kids that go out there. You know how many kids have come back to see us and they're 20 years old and they've graduated with an MBA and they're going to be a doctor and some of them are hired here as teachers. I'm really proud of that. It's amazing. I'm really proud of our kids and even those little bitty ones at lunch today. (laughs) Come on, Elsie, remember I was in your class a long time ago? That was last year. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I'm proud of all of this and I'm proud of how all these teachers work together. 
and how they get along like a really nice family. It would be terrible. And I've had the experience in other places where the staff was not friendly to each other. You don't ever have that feeling here of not wanting to come here because, oh, the people aren't friendly. You want to come here. I view it as my friends are here and my kids are here. The kids are amazing. Aren't they? They're so amazing. Ugh, I know. I know. <laughs> I, every year as I send my kids off to the next classroom at the end of the year, and I think, I'm just never going to get over this. I'm going to miss them. I'm never going to like the next class like I love <laughs> this one. And in comes the new class, and after a week, it's like, I just love these kids. Oh, my gosh, look at these kids. And I've got a bunch of those wonderfulness in my room now. They're so cute. They're cute, and they're smart. And they're very resilient, and they learn so much from you. So well, they're lucky to have you. Well, I'm really lucky to get these kids. I really am. They're they're wonderful, and people like you are pretty wonderful. You Aww. guys, well, you are. You've been so nice to us over well, this episode. <laughs> but I see how hardworking all of the staff is, yeah. and I've backed down over a lot of the things I used to do here, mm-hmm. and the young ones take over it, and and they're doing such an amazing job. I just love that, and I am proud of all of it. Can I say it's a cool place? Why don't we wrap things up there, Elsa? Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for asking me, even though I was very hesitant to do this. (laughs) Well, we're really glad you agreed. (laughs) That's because you have winning ways about you. You do. (laughs) (laughs) I know Jessica did a lot of persuading. You did did okay. (laughs) You did all right. All right, listeners, we would love to hear your reactions from today's episode. You can email us at podcast at childsvoice.org, and you can find episode show notes and archived episodes at our Child's Voice website, childsvoice.org slash podcast. Yes, be sure to let us know your thoughts on the topic today, and stay tuned for next week as we will be talking with an alumna of Child's Voice named Haley Drucker. Haley is a college student with bilateral cochlear implants working towards earning a degree in deaf education. Yes, she is. Which is really amazing. And she's worked here for several summers. So it should be a great episode, so be sure to tune in. Thank you for joining us for another episode of All Ears at Child's Voice. Be sure to join us for our next episode. We release episodes every other week on Wednesdays. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at, at Tatum Fritz SLP, and Jessica is at Jessica Brack SLP. And if you're interested in learning more about Child's Voice, Child's Voice is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the handle at child's underscore voice, no apostrophe. We'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening.